The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Mark Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question? Do numbers go that high? I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of marked medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte. And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner. And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. Hello, it's great to be back here with Marked Medicine. My name is Dr. Mark Brulte, and I'm super excited about today's topic and today's guest, Jason Wilcox, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, which is exciting to me. This is a new field for me. I didn't know that this even existed. It's just a a fantastic topic. Um, I'm going to let Jason tell you a little bit about himself. So thank you guys for letting me come on and, and be with you today. It's, it is very exciting. My name is Jason Wilcox, as Mark said. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Um, I've been in this field. I just finished my master's uh, the first part of this year, and um, I've actually been working in mental health for about the last three and a half years on an inpatient psychiatric unit. So um, it's really a passion of mine to to discuss mental health and help people better understand, you know, what I do with as a mental health nurse practitioner. So thank you guys for letting me be here today. Thank you for coming. And I don't really think there's anybody better that we could have had here. So thank you for joining us. When we first started talking about who who are we going to have as a guest, the, you were the first person that came to my mind. I'm like, who better to have than Jason? Because you're just fantastic to talk to. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Just an interesting story. The only textbook that I have ever read cover to cover is my psychiatry textbook from medical school. Now, I remember very little of it, but I did read it cover to cover because it's just fascinating what the human mind is capable of doing. Uh, It's always been a fascination of mine. Although I practice general medicine, emergency medicine uh, primarily, I've always had a particular interest in mental health disorders and what all can go on. But, you know, I had the most rudimentary knowledge of it. You know, basically I was taught this construct of there's there's three mental health disorders, thought disorders like schizophrenia, mood disorders, which would be depression or bipolar mania, um, and personality disorders. And of course there's overlap syndromes and there's always the possibility of, of intertwining substance and alcohol abuse with this. But that's really where my knowledge stops. I mean, and, and of course today in the emergency room, my job is stabilization of a crisis and getting specialists involved and getting the patient sent to where they need to be. But I guess my question to you, uh, among many other questions, is what types of patients do you see? What types of um, uh, problems are you dealing with as a psychiatric health nurse practitioner? What are the gaps you're filling in in the mental health field that were not previously filled? Like I said, I'd, I'd never heard about a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. This is really cool to me. Yeah, so we, um, as I mentioned earlier, I do work on an inpatient psychiatric unit at the local hospital in Hazelhurst where I live, and we treat um, any we treat schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. We treat a lot of dementia with behaviors. Uh, we treat 
uh, eating disorders. So we treat pretty much the gamut of mental health disorders that you can think of. Those are just primarily a lot of what we see. And I would say that probably 80% of our patients are dementia patients with behaviors. Um, and, you know, you can't, you can, you can treat their behaviors. You can't treat the dementia. You know, it depends on what, what stage they are and where they're, where their behaviors lie as to what you actually can do for them. Um, we, we talked earlier um, just off offline, but mental health is we we're in a desert when it comes to mental health providers, in, especially in the Southeast. And I think that one of the things that, you know, my numbers are not correct. And I know that, but let's just say in my county, my home County, if there are 2,500 diagnosed mental health disorders, there are 500 people seeking treatment. Wow. Now, is it because the other 2,000 don't know about treatment? The other 2,000 are ashamed of what's going on with them, so they don't seek treatment? I'm not sure. But there, there's such a wide need for that. And, you know, psychiatrists are not, they're few and far between everywhere, and especially where we live. So I think that one of the things that the mental health nurse practitioner is going to be able to do is we're going to be able to fill some of those gaps and we're going to treat, be able to help to get care out to those that are, are lacking care. Mm -hmm. Jason, you just touched on it and it's so incredibly important to me. For the last 23 years, I've been in a rural environment working in the emergency room in general practice and there is a paucity of healthcare in general. And certainly when you get down to mental health, there's even greater need for providers and um, access to care that just does not exist today. So can you tell me like, what is the future, uh, the role of the future uh, PMHNP, particularly in the rural environment? How do you see it going? What What's your vision? So, you know, I think that medicine in general has been reshaped during COVID. I think that, you know, changed the the footprint and the way things are going. People got used to, you know, being able to do telehealth, telemedicine, where they saw their provider, you know, on a, on a video screen and they got to tell them what was going on. And so I think people got used to that. And I think, you know, we're a, we are a society of convenience. And so if something's convenient, we're more likely to do it. And so I think that's where, especially mental health, we saw a lot of patients via telehealth or for those who are not familiar with that, it's just basically a, a Skype video that you're talking to your provider. You're giving them, you know, it's your interview. You're just over, you're over a video chat. And so I think that that's going to be where, especially in our area where's lacking the care, I think they will be able to use the video capabilities to get, to seek more care and, and you can get those people that are out in the in the community that maybe don't have transportation mm -hmm. and can get into town, you know, but they have they have a cell phone. And so you can you can set up a link that they can see their provider from the comforts of their home. Well, and not only that, and I may be skipping around and I don't mean to, but you are gonna be that does help with access to care as far as just being more accessible in the community, but also bringing up the stigma, you know, for example, there are times that, you know, I don't, I don't want to go me personally and get 
my my Botox done uptown where I'm parked right beside the road and everybody in town is driving by and seeing like, oh, you're there, you know. So I feel like from my experience, some patients are the same way. They may would seek care, but they don't want anybody. To, they're embarrassed. There's a stigma with mental health problems and they don't want to be seen. So telehealth is a fantastic resource for people who may be dealing with those types of issues or barriers. I couldn't agree more. And I think that with mental health, stigma is the biggest thing with it. It it drives people away from seeking care Mm -hmm. is just, just like you said, Amanda, it's, they don't want to be seen going into their provider's office for whatever reason, you know, if it's just medication management or for therapy, they don't want people to know their personal and private business. If you go to a, you know, to your primary care physician, you could just be going for a checkup people and people may assume that, but if you go to a mental health provider, people Mm -hmm. know that you're going because you have a mental health need. Mm -hmm. And so they steer away from that. So I think you're right in saying that this will help to open doors for those that need care that Mm -hmm. will seek it. Otherwise, if they can do it from the comforts of their home, Mm -hmm they're more likely to seek out care. And the privacy of their own home. Exactly. And, and, cer- and certainly since you've sought out this educational path, you have every faith in the knowledge that in the future, you and people that train like you are going to be even more important to providing mental health care. Right. Absolutely. Particularly in rural environments. Absolutely. Right. And just what what a blessing. Just it's it's amazing. I mean, I love learning this stuff. This is great. But you know, you brought it up about barriers to care. And I'd actually written down a few questions here. And that was one of my uh, questions. What you see as a provider, what are some of the challenges you see? Is it is it financial? Is it a lack of family support? Is it a lack of insight to the disease process? Is it adherence and compliance to treatment? Is it coexisting medical problems and substance abuse? Is it all of the... Tell me what you see as barriers to patients seeking the care that they need because it's a huge problem. So exactly the, what, what you just said. It is every one of those. And it's it's different for every patient. You know, you may have those that that is a financial issue. It's a financial strain that, you know, they can they may can come and see you, but can they afford them to get the medication that they need after they've come to see you and you've given them a prescription for an antidepressant or an antipsychotic. Can they afford the medication then? Um, family support. You know, again, we live in the South and and I'm not trying to, you know, throw shade on the South, but, you know, I know when I grew up, it was a lot of things of just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and right. go on. It's not, you know, there's not the, the older generation doesn't see, they see if you need mental health treatment or if you need, if you, something's going on, it's a weakness mm-hmm. that you could overcome yourself and it's not. So there that you may have that as lack of family support, um, lack of insight. Sometimes people don't realize that, you know, Hey, this is really, you know, I am depressed. You know, some people will just, I'm just tired. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it, it could be mask itself as depression. And so people may not realize what's actually going on with them. You know, adherence or compliance to their medication they may start taking that medication and feel better. Well, what happened? They quit their, taking their it. medication worked. Mm-hmm. So they're better. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to stop taking it now because I'm better. Right. Well, your, your medication is what made you better. So you don't need to stop taking it. You need to continue to take it. Does that say that you are on, you know, mental health medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics the rest of your life? Not necessarily. It's no different than, you know, blood pressure medicine or diabetes, diabetes, 
medication, proper life changes and maintenance, you may can back your dosage down or you may can come off of it altogether. It just depends on the person. Everybody's different. And then coexisting medical conditions, substance abuse, alcohol, those are all things that, you know, definitely can can cause barriers or, or challenges as a provider for us because, you know, are, are the substance abuse, the substance abusers, are the alcoholics, are they self-medicating? Do they do that just because it's right. easier that they can mask what's going on with them if they are, if they're high or if they're drunk, mm-hmm. you know, is that, is that what they're doing? You know, so that, that does, is definitely a barrier as well. And that, and that's something, a huge thing that I see, particularly with alcohol, a legal drug in the United States of America, people with anxiety issues, they drink, it helps their anxiety. They think while they're under the influence, but they don't understand the physiology, the rebound CNS hyperexcitation, and it's actually going to worsen the process. It's like, well, and then it causes a, depression. Yes, it's like a tiger yeah. chasing its tail, and you're never going to catch it. Absolutely, you know? and, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think that that's where you can help tremendously. You have the ability, the training, the understanding to explain this, and you can do therapy. You can do drugs. Also, it's 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 an amazing field that you've embarked upon. What? Uh, tell me about that. I know that as a nurse practitioner, you're providing medication. Okay. You're collaborating with overseeing physicians. You're also providing therapy and counseling. Do you view those as separate or, or co-equal or some more important in some patients than other? I mean, explain the difference to me. So therapy, you know, a lot of times things are in most anything, you're going to have your first line of treatment. This is, you know, with you, in emergency medicine, you're going to, you're going to have something that you're very comfortable with. And this is your first line of treatment for us. Therapy is the first line. It's the first Mm -hmm. go-to let's try therapy first because it may be, you learn coping mechanisms. You learn, you know, different things about your, the mental health disorder that you have and the process that it, that it travels. So you, therapy may be all that you need. If that doesn't work, then, then we add on medications. And so they go hand in hand. One helps the other. Um, you do have those patients that, again, I said, you know, we're a society of convenience. They don't want to do the therapy part. They just rather take a pill and get better. And sometimes that helps. But does it actually, do you get to the underlying cause of what's going on? And can you fix it? Typically without therapy, I would say no. And that's my opinion. But I would say, no, you can't fix it by medication alone. You need to discuss and talk with somebody about those underlying causes. And to learn coping mechanisms. Absolutely. Coping coping skills for anything, no matter what it is, is is tremendous. You have to know how to deal with what's coming up or what what is what presents itself to you at that time. You need to know how to deal with it. Jason, a lot of patients and and we talked about this earlier, a lot of um, historical societal views of mental health disorders and treatment thereof are rather fatalistic. How do you provide hope for success and a better future for patients and their families? And and what benefits do you see occurring in these people's lives as they are successfully treated? So I think the the hope and success part of that and how do you give, how do you teach families and, and patients about that? You have to talk about the experiences that you had and the patients that you've treated now, you, you don't want to downplay what's going on with them. 
because it's 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 important that you that you make sure that you they understand that you're not belittling or you're not making light of their situation, but to let them know that they're not the only ones that have gone through this or that are going through what they're going through. And that, that you can discuss, you know, as much as possible with them past cases that, that we've treated with, with success. And you may even can discuss cases that have been, you know, much more severe than the case currently presenting to you that you've seen great success with. And I think that's the best way for it to get that message across is, you know what, you, you have this going on, you're depressed and you have, you know, generalized anxiety and, you know, because you lost a parent or a child or a loved one, whatever the case may be, but you're not alone. And there, there is hope and there, there are things that we can do for you to help you get better. And then you can use a, for instance, you know, in the past, I had a patient that went through whatever it may have been that was similar to to kind of bring it home to them to know that there there is hope and there is success. And and how do you, how do you measure success or or what do you see and and to know you've been successful? That person gets some sense of normalcy back. They get the per, the family gets the person that they knew prior to what's going on with them back. That person gets to live as close to a normal life as they've ever lived. They're not in, you know, they're not laying in the bed 23 hours out of the day, or they're not hoping that they never wake up. You know, they're back to being productive members of society. They want to get up and do things. They have hope. They have dreams and ambitions that they want to see fulfilled. So that's where you can see success in this. What an amazing ray of hope. You know, I I look back and I had a patient one time that suffered terrible physical trauma terrible anxiety, depression, all kinds of mental health issues with with substance and alcohol abuse and very horribly injured individual that survived, survived the physical trauma. And uh, I saw that patient again a couple of years later for a completely unrelated thing. And, and the person was in the room and their family was there and their spouse and their children and their mother and I was, I, I guess I was kind of rude looking back. I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you survived. <laughs> you know, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, but, but I mean, and, and the patient looks at me and says, the best thing that ever happened to me was that horrible accident because it allowed me to get help with my real problem, which was yeah. my mental health disorder and my substance abuse. And I've reconnected with my family and look at, look at what I'm, surrounded by now. I almost cry when I'm thinking about it. I mean, it's, it's amazing that what you've committed to and, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just truly amazing. Well, I mean, and, and I guess that leads me to, you know, do you always follow these patients long-term? Do you, do you get them back to the general practice office, uh, to the family nurse practitioner or the family practitioner or, I know it's all individualized, but I mean, it, is, how- it totally is individualized. And it comes down to that patient and what they're comfortable with. What do they want? You know, do they want to continue to see me or whomever they're seeing for their mental health? Or do they want to go back to their primary care physician that referred them to, to you to begin with? Um, I think you leave that up to that patient because in the end, we want, we want our patients to be on board with their care. They ha- and they have to be in order for it to work. They have to feel like they have a hand in what's going on. And as long as they feel like they have a say in, in their care, 
they're more than likely going to try and follow it. You know, if I walk in and give them a treatment plan and say, this is what you're going to do, or if you walk in and say, this is what you're going to do, they may or may not do it. But if we walk in and say, this is what I'm thinking, you know, that we should do for you, what are your thoughts on that? Get their buy-in on it. Make sure they're comfortable with what you're trying to get them to do. And if you can get their buy-in on it, you're more than likely going to get, see success for that patient. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's awesome. Um, I guess, you know, as a general nurse practitioner, general practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, whatever the field that somebody is working in as a healthcare provider, um, what types of patients do you and problems do you think they should be referring to you? I know that a lot of it, it, I was in private practice for a couple of years and and it is, it's incredible the amount of mental health issues that are involved in general practice. It's really amazing. And, you know, you tell me what I need to be sending to you. And you also tell me what can the general provider do to best help you help that person? What kind of workups do you need? What kind of trial therapies do you need? Help us out. (laughs) Help us poor little old doctors out out here. Yeah. Um, So I think it comes, who do you refer to me and and how do you know when to refer them? I think to me, that's going to be, when do you feel, when do you get to that point where you're like, you know what? I just don't know what else to do. I've tried this. I've tried that. I don't know what else to do because the, I think the most detrimental thing could be that you keep that person under your care Mm -hmm. and they don't get any better. And, and they're, so they're finally just like, you know what? There's no hope for me. Well, Jason, and I don't mean to butt in, no, but it, it would be no different than keeping a patient under your care with chest pain and not sending them to a cardiologist. Absolutely. It's when it becomes a point that you're, you're, you're uncomfortable yourself to say, I'm not, I'm not doing this patient any good. They need to go see someone else. I, I would be, I would be wrong to say any, any patient that's a mental, that has mental health issues, you need to send them directly to me. That's not the case. I don't have to see everyone. You know, there there are things that, you know, primary care physicians, you know, nurse practitioners feel comfortable treating in their offices that don't need to come see me. But if it gets to that point, you know, and you have a schizophrenic patient and you've tried several different things and it's just you're not comfortable with with the course that they're going and you're and you're not seeing any improvement in their care, then by all means refer them out for mental health treatment. Well, or, or to bring up depression, you know, basically, I think you made a good point there. You know, well, it's when you're no longer comfortable taking care of that patient. You know, maybe maybe nurse practitioners or providers in general should be making that decision a little more rapidly than we've made that decision in the past because we do have people like, we do have access to people like you now. You know, I may keep a patient in the office with chest pain if I feel confident that it's from reflux, but if anything inside of me feels like, hey, we need to rule out cardiac stuff, I'm re- I'm making that referral today. You know, at, at what point do you think we should say, you know, okay, I'm not going to just treat your, your depression with Lexapro. I'm going to make the decision today, you know, to refer you for a higher level of care? So to me, I think if, if you have a patient that they come in and you treat them, you made the reference to Lexapro. If you give them, you start them out on Lexapro and you make two medication adjustments and you don't see a difference, I would say then, hey, let's refer you out 
I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, and I'm not super familiar with it, so I don't want to go into depth in trying to talk about it. But there is a company, and it's called GeneSight. It's GeneSight testing, and what you do is it's a simple mouth swab. We send it off. It comes back, and they there's a red, yellow, and green section, almost like a stoplight. And it tells you, in the green section, it's medications that that you're that are there's no gene to drug interaction Mm -hmm. in the yellow it's going to give there's a drug to gene interaction and it tells you there's little numbers out beside it and it tells you what those interactions are Mm -hmm. and then in the red it's it goes a little bit more in depth and there's there's even more numbers to tell you what those interactions are now it's not to say that you can't prescribe out of any of those three categories but it's just letting you know hey if you get over into this red you're going you may encounter right this this drug reactions so i think that you know, again, back to your question, Amanda, is if, if you've made two medication adjustments and you've not seen significant improvement, that that's probably a good place to say, I'm going to refer you out mm-hmm. to somebody else mm-hmm. that, that specializes in this. And, and back, one more thing that you talked about that you mentioned, there, there are beginning to be more mental health nurse practitioners available for your primary care physicians mm-hmm. for your family nurse practitioners to refer them out to somebody in the past they've you've kept it close and, and kept it in your right. offices because there was nobody to send them exactly to. and so now as as we begin to multiply mm-hmm. and we're in more communities there are more resources than for you family nurse practitioners for primary care for ed physicians whatever mm-hmm. it may be to refer them out for more care Thank and goodness. We're, and right. and we're, we're definitely glad to help. You know, and, and mentioning that, and my numbers are off, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, just say, for instance, if there's 125,000 family med- family nurse practitioners in the United States, there's 12,000 mental health nurse practitioners. Wow. So that shows what a, what a deficit we have on that end. Mm-hmm. But we all know that mental health is such substantial. A, yeah, such a great need. But that's why I'm so excited about today because that number can increase. That number right. can increase much more rapidly Absolutely. than the number of psychiatrists can increase. Absolutely. Yes. And and I think it's also important for people to know that you work in collaboration with a psychiatrist. Yes. You, there's even cases, look, just like I'm sending you cases, you're going to have to be sending cases to him Absolutely. or discussing things or uh, explain that whole process and, and relationship. So yeah, I do have a, a collaborating physician in over, oversight. It's uh, Dr. Kwaku Opong. He is our new psychiatrist that Jeff Davis Hospital just recruited from Los Angeles. So it's, I'm sure he's in shock from moving from the city to Hazelhurst, <laughs> but he he is with us and he is my oversight. So we work hand in hand together uh, on our inpatient unit, and and then we will work again going forward on the outpatient. I'm going to kind of on the what would I refer to him and what would I keep for myself. Um, I think with me still being relatively new, when it gets out of my comfort zone, if I'm not comfortable, I'm definitely going to turn to him to say, hey, I don't feel comfortable treating this patient and I need you to do that. And I want to be in on it. I want to sit down with you I want to during those sessions so that I know what's going on so that in the future I'm not caught off guard and I can treat that patient, a patient similar to that. So he's he's wonderful. He's he's very easy to talk to. Very, um, he puts a lot of things in layman's terms. He doesn't speak in big big words, and so he's very easy to understand. 
And as a provider, that's exciting because, again, back to the the lack of psychiatric care available to the populace. The, wow, what an extension. Two or three guys like you can magnify the impact that a psychiatrist can have on society and, and what a stabilizing force and what a, uh, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm really excited about this field. Yeah, we're, we're very excited. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that looking at things the community needs, um, our community saw a need five years ago for a mental health facility, a behavioral health unit. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to build a 10 bed adult psychiatric unit onto our hospital. So we are licensed for 18 and above. And so that was one of the needs that our community needed. And then obviously the outpatient side of it there, when we refer patients out now after, after discharge, we have to refer them out to, you know, wherever we can find, because there's not a lot of outpatient resources for, you know, follow-up mental health care. And to, to look at your background and the, the inpatient work that you've done predominantly with adults, I assume a lot of them geriatric. Yes. Um, It's interesting to me as an emergency physician, the masquerading um, abilities of certain medical diseases to to present to what appears to be a mental health disorder. And it may not be. So I think it's important for you to tell the listener, the pro- the providers, the, the workups and things and, and, and disorders that, that they need to be looking for to best help you and ruling out to best help you know that you're truly dealing with something that you should be dealing with. And we've not missed something along the way to help, help me, Help me again. Yeah. So one of the things that I, you know, I would suggest or recommend and would be helpful for us on the mental health side is to do a complete, you know, workup on your patient to make sure that, you know, we're not, you know, we're not, you're not going to send me a patient, you know, a dementia patient or a patient that presents with dementia, you know, because they're forgetful, they're, they're confused, things like that. That patient could have a urinary tract infection. That's not something, that's something we can help definitely, mm-hmm. but does that warrant an inpatient stay? No, it doesn't. You know, you, you start them on a antibiotic, they can go home. They don't have to come to the behavioral health unit, you know, and spend three or four days just because they have a urinary tract infection. So I think a, a good medical workup initially just to rule out any, anything that could cause, you know, there, there's such a litany of, of things that could mm-hmm. masquerade as, you know, mental health or a behavioral health disorder that's, that's medical. So I think, you know, rule out and say, okay, I've, I've done this test, that test, whatever. And it's none of these things. Then it's definitely has to be mental health. It's a psychiatric problem. Then refer those patients to us and let us, you know, we can, you know, get them on, on a medication regimen. And I, I would love to say that the first shot is the great, you know, and I say shot, I mean, the first action is the correct one, but it's not, it's, it's no different than in, in the medical side of it. You, you may have to change medications two or three times to find the right course of action, the course of treatment for that patient. Correct. You know, I've seen in the past in the ER, I've seen hyper and hypothyroidism masquerade is a mental health disorder. I've seen cortisol excess. I've seen atypical seizures. I've seen 
unfortunately, brain tumors. You know, people come in with really bizarre behavior and people think they're having a, a, a schizo break and they're not, you know. It's, right. it's you know, I've just seen all of these things. And so I, I do think it's important for in uh, practice for people to rule out the medical end. And, right. and, and sometimes testing is involved. I'm fortunate in the ER, I have that stuff available at my fingertips. It can be more problematic in practice. I understand that. Um, but, but I, I'm just, um, I do think that people need to always think about medical illnesses. And that's one thing when, a, if a patient comes to us for an inpatient stay, they, they, they'll come through our emergency department, unless they're in another emergency department, they will come through ours and we would, they will get a medical clearance. So we run a whole, a whole, the whole gamut of testing to make sure, you know, that we're, they're not, mis- we're not missing anything. And it's not, you know, substance abuse psychosis or induced psychosis, something along, or alcohol induced psychosis. We, you know, we run those tests if they're coming in to our unit, but on an outpatient scenario, you don't have, you know, they're not going to go get a bunch of testing before they come to us if they're referred. So uh, from the primary care side, that would be great if, you know, those things could be ruled out prior to them being sent to us. So we do play a role. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think, it, I think that's important to not, to not, um, it, it's a collaborative team and the primary care physician, the ED physician, the mental health providers, they all work as a team together. And you said it earlier, the goal for these patients is, is their, their well being and to get them better. And so you know, everybody together, more eyes on one person, you, you come closer to getting a, a accurate diagnosis and getting that patient the help that they need. One man can't see it all. And the impact is huge. Absolutely. The impact on society, For families, sure. friends, loved ones, it's, it's just incredible. You yes, know, you can make a huge difference. Yes, you can. Let me, this is a selfish question. Okay, uh, you know, go ahead. I, I'm here to learn too. Are there any exciting new drugs or therapies or interventions or anything coming that, that you've seen. It's been a long time since I've been in school. <laughs> right. So a couple that, that popped to the front of my mind and you may be familiar and I, I can't go into depth because I don't know a whole lot about it because there's some specialized training, but patients with PTSD, I'm not sure if you're familiar with EMDR. It's eye movement, rapid desensitization. desensitization. I can't say that word, but anyway, it, it helps the per- person to focus on the trauma and then they do different, there's different um, motions that they do to help them to compartmentalize and, and remove their, themselves from the trauma, kind of see it from, a, from an outside standpoint. So EMDR is fantastic for patients with PTSD. Uh, a drug that comes to mind is we had a drug rep come by not long ago, about a week or so ago, and it's called Aristata. It is, it's an Abilify you're familiar with Abilify, it's, it's a mood stabilizer and Aristata is a long acting injectable. So, you know, we talked earlier about med compliance or adherence and people continuing to do what, you know, they need to do with their medication. Some people prefer, Hey, you know what? Just give me an injection. I don't have to worry about taking a pill every day. Or some people that just don't want to take their medication, they may be more of a candidate for a long acting injectable. So Aristata is that it's a long acting Abilify and and usually you have to do a do a by mouth trial with Abilify for 
you know, seven to 10 days. This, and this, this helps tremendously on our inpatient unit. Seven to 10 days to make sure they're not going to have any kind of adverse reactions. So with this, you can do a shorter PO or by mouth trial. And then you give the loading dose and the, the first maintenance dose all in the same day. So analogous to Haldol and Haldol-D. Right. Only for mood stabilization. Absolutely. Absolutely. How amazing. Yes. And so then, you know, then it's an eight week, then it's eight weeks before they need that second injection. So um, that that's one of the thing, one of the new drugs that come to mind that's, that I'm really excited about. It'll help us tremendously in the inpatient world. You know, I've known you for a long time personally, and you're a fascinating person, brilliant person. Um, that's a stretch, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you are. But, you, you know, the, the whole point of marked medicine, what we're doing here is to help providers, sometimes help patients, uh, with a philosophy predominantly. You know, I've, I've kind of, it's, it's taken me a while to get here, but I, I've always wanted to help people. I've always wanted to figure the disease out, beat it if I can, is one way to put it. And, and the benefit of that is obvious, you know, you know, uh, um, and I guess it boils down to two things, two questions. Number one is why, why is this happening to somebody? That's, that's the first part of my, my general philosophical approach. The second part would be, what would I do if this person were my own family? And I know that's the kind of person you are. Tell me, your general approach to patients, what your philosophical approach is, what you've seen, what you've developed into. So as you said earlier, um, primarily what I've dealt with up to this point have been geriatric patients. And so um, I am the director of the inpatient unit. And so I talked, you know, when I have staff meetings, we are, are hire new people. One of my things is you look, I want you to look at every patient that comes in here as that could be my mom, my dad, my grandmother, my grandfather. I want those, I want to be, I want to treat, and I'm going to treat my patient the way I would want my parents treated or the way that I would want to be treated. Because I feel like if you do it that way, you leave no stone unturned when you're trying to find help for that person. So if if you can, you know, if, if you're treating them like family, as you should, if you're, if you're truly, you know, in, in this field for what matters and, and it's for the betterment of your patient and, and for their well well being is to leave no stone unturned and find, there may not be a cure, but find something to help them lead as normal a life as possible. And that's so good to hear because you're, you're where I am and you did it on your own. You 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 developed that sense. That's just who you are. Yeah. It's not like you learned it from me. Right. And that, so, I mean, I hope that so many providers out there can be that same way. That's that's my hope. I mean, there's so many benefits to this philosophical approach. It helps the patient. I mean, that's what we're here for. Yeah. It absolutely. helps their families. It, it it helps society in general. It's uh, you know, it, you you garner respect from the patients in their families and from the people that you send patients to, the other specialists. So Absolutely. when you reach out to them in the future, they're more likely to help you. They remember you. Oh yeah, he had that patient that, wow, he did a good job with him. I need to help him with this this person too. Absolutely. You know, and, I agree. You know, it's the administration, whatever administrative structure you're within, a practice, a hospital system, a, a larger you know, multi-specialty clinic, everybody's within some administrative structure. Let's be realistic. Well, that's here. for sure. They tar- start to respect you and treat and, and, and understand what you're doing and try to help you do what you're doing. Exactly. So th- 
it 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 basically let's be a little selfish here. It increases your income. You get more referrals. You get you get um, other opportunities to grow professionally, jobs, whatever you know. Um, there's significant reduction in liability if you treat people like they're your own. That's exactly without right. Without any question, in my mind, that is true. No, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, it does. You know, we all know that, that money makes the world go around. But at the end, if that's the only reason that you're doing, that we're in this and we're doing it, then we're in it for the wrong reasons. Correct. If you can't, if you're not, if you don't want someone to get better and you don't want to know what, and you don't want to do everything in your power to make them better, then then I think it's time that whoever, whoever is in it just for the money, it's time they go home. And yes. find something else to do. And you know, I mean, to me personally, the personal satisfaction that I get knowing that I helped somebody and that I learned something and that I was able to manipulate physiology and pathophysiology in a way that that changed that person's life, maybe even saved that person's life. You know, I mean, the, wow. I mean, it's, it's just every time I do it, it's still wow. Yeah. And I think that, as you said, you know, it's, to, to know you made a difference. Yes. And and sometimes that's what you do for somebody. That's the last, you know, especially with what you're doing, but what I do as well, that may be the last thing you can do for somebody or someone's family member. And so to know that I've made a difference in somebody's life, that's what I went, that's why I went to school. That's what I did do what I do for now is to know that I'm making a difference. And to me, that's success when I see the difference that I've made in somebody's life. And, and, and you will, with what you're in, you will have, you know, let, let's be realistic. Oftentimes my interactions are seconds. Right. You know, they may Absolutely. be very impactful. Sure. They may be very dramatic and they make for good TV, but the, then the patient's taken off in a helicopter to a trauma center or to wherever. And I, I never know what happened, but right. you will have involvement with these people. You will have long ongoing relationships. You will actually see these changes in the place where you live. It's, it's amazing. Well, I just kind of, I'm kind of backing all the way up to the beginning for just a second, but you're exactly right. When I started, excuse me, when I started in to into nursing school, I wanted to go, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to build the relationships with my patients and I wanted to get to know them and their families and, and things about them. And so when I, when I, after I graduated and took my first job and I realized doing that particular job, that was not what I went to school for. So I sought some sought out something different. So I worked for hospice for a little while. Absolutely loved hospice. That it was fantastic. It was one of those things that you're doing for people that and knowing they know their outcome. But you're there what what time you spend with them makes a difference for them. And then it kind of rolled into mental health. And it's the same thing there. You know, it's the little things that you can do for people that make the most difference. And sometimes I say a lot of times, or sometimes I say it all the time, but I say it a lot, is sometimes people don't expect you to fix anything. They just want you to listen. Yeah, it's 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 good to hear that. We have residents and students rotate through the ER, and I tell them, sometimes very young in their, early in their training process, and I tell them, look, <laughs> you're going to walk in that room, and you're going to get to be a part of, of that family story. And do you want to be a good story <laughs> or a not so good story? I said, exactly. but here's the critical thing. You can write that story before you ever walk in. 
You can write that story by having the correct attitude. You can write that story by making sure you're doing for that little old lady in the bed exactly what you'd do for your grandmother. Yeah. You get to write that story. And I think that's so, so important. It is. And and I think, you know, just as you get to write that story, and again, kind of back tagging on what I said, you can go into that room and you may not know what's going on. Just let them know. I'm not sure, but we're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. We're going to find the right answer to this. I can't tell it to you right now, but we will figure it out. Yes. You don't have to know everything. They don't expect you to know it when you walk through the door, as long as you're willing to figure it out. I mm-hmm. surely hope that at all the the Thanksgiving and holiday dinners of these families, when they start talking about somebody's illness, that that generally they're telling good stories about that guy in the ER. Absolutely. I I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I'm sure they are. (laughs) I know they will about you. (laughs) I'm sure they are about you as well. So, which kind of leads me around to what is your biggest reward as a mental health provider? I know we've hit all around it and even answered it to some degree, but you tell me what is your biggest reward for doing this? Hmm. My biggest reward is the thank you that I get from somebody or the, the neck hug mm-hmm. yeah. from somebody to just say, thank you for what you did. I tell a story a lot. Um, when I'm teaching, I have to teach a class from my hospital. I tell the story. I had this lady, <clears throat> she was a, she was a patient. She was in a wheelchair every day that I walked by, I patted her on the shoulder and said, good morning. I hope you have a great day. One morning, one morning I walked by and she grabbed me by the hand and she said, Hey, I said, ma'am, she said, I just want to tell you, thank you. You make me feel special and feel like somebody just because you touched me on my shoulder and speak to me every day. So that's, that's my reward. Wow. And, and that's why you're here right Absolutely. now because, mm-hmm. well, you're here because of Amanda. Amanda <laughs> knew you were perfect for this. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm just kind of here to ask the questions. Well, I, I, I appreciate days. you guys having me again. Like I said, it was, it's been fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, um, it's so good for me as a provider to hear that there's, people like you out there, resources like you out there, not just related to mental health, but any field. And, and there's just so much stuff that I don't know. Not only that I don't know, but I've never even heard of. I've never even heard of these new drugs, these new therapies. I mean, so I have to have access to you and you like products to send my patients to because I just know that you know things that I don't know. Not only you know things I've never even heard of. I mean, this is just, it's what a hopeful situation. What a great situation. I mean, well, well, you know me. You know, I love to tell stories. I love to tell anecdotes. I mean, and I do that with patients also. I tell them, hey, look, you know, let, let's, for example, uh, the uh, reactive grief process. Somebody in your family close to you dies. There's a loss of some type, something, uh, uh, traumatic divorce. I mean, whatever, whatever the situation is that creates psychological trauma inside the human brain. It's generally thought of, or at least it was when I was in training, as a two-year process of recovery. And so during that time, your brain will change and adapt and 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 come to grips with your new reality and and so that's a long time okay that's not an er visit that's multiple visits with your primary care provider that's multiple visits with your now mental health uh, care provider and how can we augment the process of this changing brain to get the person back to their new normal as quickly and smoothly as possible. What we don't want to do is have a grief process that becomes so severe that they're suicidal or nearly suicidal. 
you look at, there's been like 35 survivors jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Every one of them has been interviewed. Every one of them has been interviewed by psychiatrists. Every one of them, the second they left the railing, the second they were in there, regretted it. We don't need another person to experience that. We need to help them get through the process of any type of severe human trauma psychologically and get them to the, to the side of better, okay? And so you've got to tell your patients, Amanda, here's what I'm trying to do with you, okay? Here's why I'm trying to do this with you. Here's why I want you to meet Jason or somebody like Jason. It's very, very important for you to understand as a provider that there is hope, that, that it is a process, that there is recovery, there is betterment. You know, it doesn't have to end tragically or nearly end tragically to get better. Um, and so I think it's, it's you know, I do it by telling stories to patients. I do it by, hopefully I've developed, a lot of times, believe it or not, even in the ER, I see people that I've seen before, I've seen family members, and, and, they, and I do have to some degree a rapport with them not perfectly so like you would in a practice. but So I think that you have to use all of those tools. You have to use your goodwill with them. You have to use your, your ability to tell them analogous stories, your ability to provide hope for the future. All of those things have to be imparted up upon the patient somehow so that they understand that it's a process, that they understand it's a, an achievable process, and that it's an important process, and it's important to more than just them. It's important to you. It's important to their family. It's important to their friends. It's important to who knows who they're going to impact in the future. I don't know. Nobody knows, but it is important. It's important for humans to be as good as they can be. That's why I do this. For sure. I mean, just to kind of, another way you can look at that maybe and explain to your patients is, you know, the brain's no different than any other organ. It can get sick. Mm -hmm. And so you give, you know, if you have, you know, whatever you might be going on, if if you just have a head cold or whatever, and you take some medicine, it gets, you get well. The brain is the same way. It can get sick. So we can give it some medicine for a little while and it can get well. And you don't have to be on that medication forever. Some, some, some mental health issues. Yes, they are on lifetime medications, but there are some that, you know, they can get well and come off medication. They don't, they're not lifetime medication patients. Well, and sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, I feel like you've told me a story before. Sometimes a patient can be on a medication for X, 12 months, I, I believe yes. you said. And during that time period, they're also going through therapy. They're learning new coping mechanisms. And when they come off their medicine, now, you know, the medicine has helped them maybe... I don't know if suppress the depression is the right word. Long it's helped them work through that work depression. Work through the depression long enough that they can learn these new skills and they come off their medicine, they still have these skills now. Absolutely. The medicine helped them be able to learn these skills, I guess, if that it makes helped sense. Bridge, it helped bridge the gap. Yes. To to learning the, the new pathways that, they're you know, as, as Mark mentioned earlier, you know, death and, you know, you have to learn... After a death, you have to learn a whole new way of living, those that are left behind. And so it, it's medication in, in that sense, you know, it helps that person to learn that new course of life and, mm -hmm. and how they're going to get by without the person that they lost. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just because someone goes on medication for depression, for instance, that's not a lifelong, you know, sentence to you're going to have to be on depression medication the rest of your life. 
if we find something that works, we like for you to try it for at least 12 months, get you stable, and then we can start to back that dosage down and hopefully get you off that medication within the next 12 months. And you may never have to go on it again because, as you said, they learned new coping mechanisms to deal with that depression. And so they've, they've not been a zombie and been medicated out right. of their mind. So they can they can remember those things and move forward and use what they've learned in the future and not maybe have to go back on medication again. Right. Just a couple more things. I mean, this could go on for hours, for days. I mean, you're a fascinating person to talk to, but um, I just applaud you for your journey. But how do, how do patients specifically find help? You, maybe even other avenues? I mean, how, how do... It, it's difficult, I understand, but what are, there have to be specific avenues that they can go down to find you or find other people like you. So there are um, there are community service boards within the county, with, within the Georgia counties, um, and you you can just go online and Google you know Georgia community service boards, and that that would pop up different. There's different regions. Um, then there's also the Department of Behavioral Health has a website so you can go on those are broken up into regions as well and it will list um that that will help you find the community service board within your area or your, your catchment area um as far as myself i am at jeff davis hospital in hazelhurst you can go to the hospital's website which is jeffdavishospital.org and um that'll give you phone numbers to get in touch with with me or somebody on my department well this has just been fascinating it's such a message of hope and and expansion of of services and it's it's just wonderful to hear again i've learned about a whole new field the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and just everything that y'all can do i mean so i guess in summation give us a big wrap up here give it tell us anything else you want to address we the 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 mic is open for as long as you need it to be so i want the biggest thing that i would like to get across to to the listener is the stigma behind mental health. We all are dealing with something, whether we just want to discuss it or not. So don't let, just because don't let your neighbor, you know, make you feel less than don't let your family member make you feel less than if you have issues going on that you can't deal with on your own, please, by all means, if it's not me, reach out to someone. If you're having suicidal thoughts, there's the simple number to call is 988 that's a suicide hotline, talk to somebody, but get help from somebody somewhere. If you need to go to your local emergency room, please do that. But don't think that you're in this alone. There's, there are, there is help out there for everybody. That that's, that's my soapbox that I get on all the time. And that's the one that I'll stay on. There is help for everybody. And don't let anybody make you feel less than just because you feel like you can't deal with something on your own. And we will link these different resources that you have discussed today. We will link those in our in our show notes for our listeners. Thank what you, a fascinating Mark. Thank you, Amanda. Thank I you, Jason. Thank you for being here. Thank absolutely. You. Jason was an absolutely fantastic guest. We're I'm so thankful to know that we have a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner so close to home. And I'm even more excited that it's one of my very good friends. Jason, if you're listening, I really want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your expertise with us. And I can't wait to see what you do for this field, um, this new field that nurse practitioners are able to participate in. But that brings up my next topic, or I think this is a good time to kind of segue into this topic anyway. We're now into December, and December is thought to be a time of 
twinkling lights and Christmas decorations and time spent with family members, but that's not the case for everyone. And December is actually Seasonal Depression Awareness Month, and millions of people actually struggle with seasonal affective disorder, Mark. So if you if you wouldn't mind, if you would talk a little bit about what that is and explain to our listeners what seasonal affective disorder is and let them know about it so that they can be aware of this with the holidays upon us. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I hate that people get it because it makes them sad and depressed, but seasonal affective disorder, commonly known as SAD, S-A-D, um, is characterized by feeling sad and depressed in the wintertime months. You just feel down. You have a loss of interest in things, anhedonia. You get low energy and feel sluggish. You have sleep disturbance, particularly excessive sleeping, not really agitation and staying awake, which interestingly brings up, you know, what really causes all this. They think it's somehow related to a delay in your circadian rhythm cycle and something to do with the cold temperature and the lack of light and melatonin and serotonin problems in the brain. The way to think of it is like it's the time that certain animals hibernate. So that's why people would get excessively sleepy. Um, People get an increased sensitivity to rejection and they feel hopeless and worthless. It's it can be bad and it and it tends to occur at the same time every year. In the northern hemisphere typically thought of during the wintertime months, the sometimes called the winter blues. Very interesting to read about. There has been a question about whether it's truly a separate entity in and of itself, or is it a subset of recurring depression? Not really finally answered, but certainly it can be treated differently. So that's kind of interesting to me with light therapy and giving kind of counterintuitively giving the person melatonin at specific times rather than waiting on the delayed melatonin release in their brain. You know, it seems weird. Hey, I'm sleeping too much and I'm going to give the person melatonin as treatment, which helps you sleep, you know, but you're trying to reset that time cycle, that daily time cycle. So it's kind of really cool to read about and, and theorize about. Now, can this happen amongst patients almost repeatedly each year at the same time? I'm I'm kind of thinking about like colic in a baby. You know, colic is at the same time, generally it's at the same time every evening. Is that the same with seasonal affective disorder? Is it is it possible for a patient to experience these symptoms only during these few months during the year and then be pretty good for the remainder parts of the year and then kind of repeat the cycle the next winter? Yes, it's actually part of the definition of the process is they actually have normal mental health the rest of the year. And and that is an interesting point. That's why people got to looking at this in the late 70s, the early 80s was when this was first kind of looked at and thought about as a possible entity. Um, it just, uh, it's there's still a lot of unknown about it. But like I said, in the Arctic latitudes, it's really, really prevalent. In areas, and and you know, there's areas like uh, in the northwestern United States where there's constant cloud cover and rain, and then it's cold anyhow, and the constant cloud cover and diminishment of light. Those people there suffer this much more frequently than they do down here as we get closer and closer to the equator. More common in women than men. 
um, somehow related to the cold temperatures and the decreased light, the, again, possibly decreased serotonin levels and increased melatonin levels, but melatonin levels at the wrong time. Something to do with the circadian rhythm delay. Just very interesting. It, what's interesting to me is how, you know, evolutionarily or related to other species that are hibernating and then some humans are exhibiting a, a near hibernation-like effect. It's I, I tend to think it is a separate entity. Now, look, I'm not a researcher, but it's just kind of odd that all of that stuff interplays together to, to, you know, be exhibited in certain people and not other people. Right. I definitely see what you're saying. So my next question is probably kind of a two-part question because I feel that there will be some overlap. But the first part is, is there anything that people can do to kind of combat these symptoms before they start experiencing them? And the next thing is, what are the treatments for seasonal affective disorder? Well, preventatively, I would, and I don't really know, but I would assume that getting, part of the treatment is exercise and outdoor activity. So yes, start that before that time of year. Get outside, do exercise, get your light exposure to try and keep your rhythm, circadian rhythm and stuff in check and where it's supposed to be. One of the therapies is bright light therapy certain wavelengths, and of course they try to protect you from the harmful rays that cause skin cancers, but 30 to 60 minutes in front of a bright light machine, not staring at the light. You can read a book, you can do other activities, but this actually works. It helps two-thirds of people. Let me ask kind of a silly question. What do you mean by a bright light machine? They literally have a light. I mean, and it's... Just like a work light or something? Or? Yeah, but no, it's a special light. Oh, it's okay. pretty darn bright too, you know, so... They're really trying to... So this is a special light that's yes. just for this. And that and the light input into the eyes, you know, has something to do with the melatonin release and all that. I don't understand the neurophysiology, but I get the concept. The It helps two-thirds of people. Interestingly, antidepressants like SSRIs also help two-thirds of people. I could not find anywhere what the combination does, but I'm sure that is tried. It can get very severe. People can get to the point of suicidality, can require hospitalization. So it it can it's not to be taken lightly. The cognitive behavioral therapy is as effective as these other modalities. Um, one thing that kind of naturally comes to mind is vitamin D, because hey, you get out in the sun, you make vitamin D, and vitamin D is known to elevate your mood and be have antidepressant effects, but and that is one of the therapies, like I think it was 6,000 inter- international units of vitamin D supplementation daily. But the effect of that was kind of hit or miss. It's not that simple. It had, It's not just the simple lack of light. It's the whole interplay and, and cross connections with the temperature and the latitude and the lack of light and the, the circadian rhythm and the melatonin and the serotonin. It's, it's not just a single thing. The whole picture is very interesting. And I, and I really do hate that people get it because it's easy to get depressed when it's cold anyhow. And then you have this true problem. 
Right, absolutely. But it's like Jason spoke about and like we talked about when we were speaking with him, there is hope. There is hope for people who are experiencing depression, whether it be year-long depression or seasonal affective disorder. The most important thing to remember is that if you or someone you know, if you are having thoughts of harming yourself, please reach out. You can call the suicide hotline, which is 988. That's the suicide and crisis hotline. Naturally, you can absolutely dial 911 if you're having thoughts of harming yourself. Also, if you're depressed, if you're just not feeling yourself, as we always say, we cannot overstate the importance of having a relationship with your primary care provider. So reach out sooner rather than later. Go ahead and talk to them and let's beat this before it gets any worse. Absolutely. No doubt about it. All good advice. So thank you all so much for listening. We hope this information is helpful for you. We hope that it If you are experiencing depression or if you are experiencing any type of seasonal affective disorder or if you know that about yourself that you always tend to have the wintertime blues as Mark called it, then we hope that this information provides you with hope. We hope that you have learned some things that you can do on your own and we also hope that you have learned a new resource that is available to you. We now have Um, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners that are in our area they also practice telehealth so if you really aren't excited about others knowing that you're reaching out for help don't let that be a barrier for you that doesn't that no longer does that have to be a barrier because we have these excellent resources available to us but thank you all so much for joining us you can find more out or find out more about us at markedmedicine.com. Remember, you can click on the Ask Dr. Mark tab. You can submit your questions there. If you have a topic that you would like for us to discuss, send us an email, let us know. If you have something that you're super passionate about that you would like to share with the world, reach out. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from you. Thank you all so much for joining us. We hope that these holidays, this holiday time, finds all of you happy and well, and we hope that you join us next week. Thank you.